Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for affording us this time to fellowship in your Son's good name. As he stated himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. Well, Father, here we are, your children, chosen by you personally, here to worship you in the best way we know how, in spirit and truth. We pray then, Father, that your will be done here this morning through each one of us as individuals and corporately. We pray that this supernaturally generated message be received with open hearts and minds and that it be not only embraced wholly by all those present here, but those listening in live and even maybe afterwards as we use technology to propagate the gospel truth. We do therefore ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title, obviously a continuation, fantastic uh, series, a very critical series to not just an individual who's already saved, obviously, but for those that we might affect in our lives. We have to get the gospel right, folks. The rest really doesn't matter if we don't get the gospel right. And as the Spirit's been alluding to for some time, he hasn't done a great or a, um, a lot of work on it yet. Uh, if you don't get the gospel right, the rest of the doctrines that you hold to be true are going to somehow be perverted. And you're going to struggle when you read your own Bibles. You're going to be confused why things don't fit the way they should fit. And if you have the gospel wrong, I'm telling you this from personal experience, for years and years, I said, why is this not fitting? Why is this not fitting? Is because I had part of the gospel tweaked. Part of the gospel wasn't actually there in my own soul. And because of that, my theology was affected. Uh, thankfully, by grace, I was still saved, uh, as uh, most or many, all of you, I hope, are. Uh, but God only knows those details. Uh, and so this is the good work that we endeavor to uh, pursue. We want to get the gospel right. And then we can go out and pursue more, quote-unquote, advanced doctrines. Uh, so it's almost a, a bit of a reload, which is a very healthy, important thing. And I wish and pray that more ministries would have the courage to do this very thing. Uh, with that said, now is the time to focus. Philippians 3.13 says, Forgetting what lies behind Matthew 6.34, Do not be anxious about tomorrow. That cleaves out yesterday and tomorrow, leaving us doing this thing that truly does matter most. So let's take advantage of the grace we've been given here again this morning. Turn your Bibles, please, to Galatians 5.22. We're going to start and end with Galatians 5 this morning. Very interesting how he brought it all back. Galatians 5.22. As a friendly reminder of why we need to get these things right. There's been a lot of talk 
from the pulpit about fruit, bearing fruit, and if you don't bear certain fruit, then you have to look at your own salvation status even. Well, this is a good indicator of fruit. Galatians 5.22 But the fruit of the Spirit and the person who saved has the Spirit will bear this fruit but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So the things that are antagonistic to that list that we just read, those nine facets, if you would, of fruit of the Spirit, those things of the flesh are antagonistic to that fruit. And a true believer has crucified the flesh. In other words, we are now dead to sin. And this is what the Spirit's been getting at. So there's your distinction as you move on in this, quote, spiritual life. Um, the thing you're looking for, the thing that's going to edify you, the thing that's going to bring you a certain sense of assurance is that fruit. And if you don't have that fruit, something might be awry. William MacDonald on Galatians 5.24 says it this way, when we repent, or when we, when we repented, there was a sense in which we nailed the old, evil, corrupt nature to the cross with all its affections and lusts. That's a nice way to think about it. When we repented, there was a sense in which we nailed the old, evil, corrupt nature to the cross with all its affections and lusts. Therefore, Paul says in verse 25, in Galatians 5, you're still there. If, and another way to look at that is since the, the type of if in there, there's a variety of types of ifs uh, that we can distinguish in the Bible. But this one really is fair to say since as well. So you could almost say since we live by the Spirit, let us also walk. And there's a lifestyle issue in view by the Spirit. So if or since we live by the Spirit, let us also walk. And there's a lifestyle issue by the Spirit. Note again, live and walk. And they are reminiscent of that phrase, that phrase that we studied in great detail years ago in Romans 1.17. The righteous man shall live by faith. From faith to faith, remember. And so I think about that. We live, we're alive to Christ from faith, and we walk. And that's to faith. And that's all Paul's saying here again. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. However, it's that other phrase, the crucified, the flesh phrase in Galatians 5 that we need to focus on. We spent Thursday evening on a very short phrase from Paul to the Romans, same writer, of course. But this was the phrase that we focused on on Thursday evening. And we didn't finish our work, so we're going to finish it here this morning. This phrase, died to sin, what does that mean? What kind of reality is that to you? 
because we are in Christ, assuming you're a believer, because we are in Christ, Romans 6, 11, 8, 1, and He died in our place, Romans 5, 6 to 8, we are counted dead with Him. We are baptized even into His death, Romans 6, 3. Our old self crucified with Him, therefore we are no longer slaves of sin. Sin is not our master anymore, Romans 6, 6 to 7. And you have to think about that posturing, if you would, when you hear that phrase, died to sin, or being dead to sin. Turn your Bibles to Romans 6, 2, where we see this very phrase, Romans 6, 2. So that's what it means, died to sin. Because we are in Christ and He died in our place, we are counted dead with Him. We call that being baptized even into His death. Our old self crucified with Him, therefore we are no longer slaves of sin, which really means that sin is not our master anymore. And that in of itself is the baseline for fruit bearing. Because as we'll see again, as the Spirit's been really harping on this past or in this series, really, if you're still a slave to sin, if your lifestyle is characterized by a life of sin, you may have a problem. You may be still in the old self. You may be still dominated uh, by the sovereignty of sin, therefore dominated by the old self. We are talking about lifestyles here, so we're not talking about never sinning again. Romans 6, 2. May it never be, Paul says, how shall we who died to sin, there's our phrase, who died to sin still live in it? A little more clarity on that up here in the board. Died to sin, the old self is under the sovereignty of sin, but it is crucified with Christ at salvation. Something that is dead to us cannot have any real power over us as Master Lord. In other words, if you're under a king and the king dies, guess what? He doesn't have any power over you. He's dead. Well, that's the same thing. We're dead to sin. If we're dead to sin, then in that same reality, sin is no longer master over us. It isn't until we're baptized with Christ in his death that that happens, though. And that happens at salvation. So something that is dead to us cannot have any real power over us as Master or Lord. As believers, we serve a living Master, Lord. And that, of course, is Christ. And that's the distinction, but that's what it means to be dead to sin. Then again, therein lies the baseline argument that we've been carrying along since part one of this series. If Jesus isn't Lord to a person... They cannot be saved. If Jesus isn't Lord to a person, they cannot be saved. When we are truly saved, He becomes our Lord, and we also receive the obedience to do His will. They are a package deal, so to speak. We haven't even really developed that yet. We've seen it a few times in the study, but they come as a package deal. He gives you the desire. He changes your heart. He gives you the desire to obey. And if you don't have that desire in you by your very nature, then you're not saved. And that's what the Spirit's saying. 
Because if you're saved, you will have that desire, even though you might screw it up. Even though you might fall prey to temptation and therefore give birth to sin. But that's not what the Spirit's talking about. The Spirit's saying, listen, if you're truly saved, you have a new Lord. He is your Lord. He is your new reality. And therefore, you will obey. You'll want to obey. You'll desire to obey, as Paul would say in Romans 7. This is precisely the argument Paul put before the Romans. Look at verse 2 again. He says, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So here we have Paul's main issue to be logically explained throughout the remainder of the chapter. That's why the Spirit's been taking all this extra time with this little phrase, died to sin. Because if you don't have the concept of what it means to be dead to sin, then the rest of his argument is going to be muddied. You're going to be a bit confused. But now you have the truth, so let's plug on. Verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. That's your privilege. That's your right, folks. The whole thing is opened up now. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. That's a fact. If you're saved. You're freed from sin. That's a fact. Lest you maybe not be saved. This is the point. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. So that's part of the encouragement consistently from Scripture. And Paul does this all the time. Remember, he loves all these people. I was reading the First and Second Corinthians uh, this past weekend, and is as difficult as the letters were, they're very personal. He's upset. He loves these individuals. And he sees what's going on. He sees the infiltration. He sees people bearing up beautifully with different Gospels from different spirits. And it's driving him mad. And I think that's what the Spirit's saying to all of us. He's saying, listen, cut it out. Those things that you're accepting as okay, you're doing something really, truly heinous. You're trying to reconcile that garbage with God. And you don't have that right. And we'll get to that before the end of class. But let's plug on. From this past week, again, just as a reminder... No such thing as dual mastership. You cannot be alive to sin and alive to God in Christ at the same time. You are either one or the other, Romans 6.11. If you are saved, you have one true sovereign. Christ is Lord. 6.9, let's read that. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, 
Death no longer is master over him. So whatever happened to Christ, we must identify. That's what, why we use that, the Bible uses that term baptized. It's a, a spiritual issue. Um, not, it's not talking about water baptism. Whatever happened to Christ, we must identify with at salvation. And Christ died to sin in two senses up here on the board. Regarding sin's penalty, propitiated or satisfied God's judgment against the sinner. That's one thing, one sense. And the other sense is regarding sin's power. He forever broke sin's power over those who belong to him. So he accomplished some really important things that we need to understand. And it's why we have the confidence we do regarding the flesh. Up here on the board. Since you have been baptized into Christ with the Holy Spirit, your new reality is sin is dead to you. That's your new reality. That sin cannot, you understand, it actually cannot. Something that's dead can't lord over someone. Something or someone that's dead can't be master over something that's alive. It's impossible. So you're dead to sin. Sin's dead to you. So it cannot be your master if you're saved. If you're not saved, it still is very much alive. Something dead cannot rule someone. Sin is no longer your master or your Lord. That was the old self's condition. Rather, you have been made new. And again, I'm speaking to believers You have been made new. When you responded positively to Jesus' call to follow me, to use his own language, you denounced the sovereignty of sin and accepted Jesus as your new Lord. You have been sealed, even, with the Spirit by Jesus Christ himself. Mark 1.8, Ephesians 1, 13-14. I'll give you Ephesians up here on the board. Part B in 14. You were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. So you say, well, what does that mean? That sounds like a lot of theological mumbo-jumbo. But it's not. Think about that. Think about how we started with Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It was the fruit of what? The Spirit. So you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The promise is that if you're saved, you will bear that kind of fruit. Who doesn't want love, peace, happiness, and these kinds of things? Who doesn't want faithfulness? Who doesn't want self-control? Who doesn't want this fruit? This is our desire. This is our direction, if you would. Does that make sense? And that's the promise if you're saved. And that's why people who think they're saved but are not, they look at the Galatians 5, 22 and 23, and it's merely an academic. Geez, I'd really like to have some of that someday. I, bet, I guess I'd better do this protocol more or something, or do this religious thing more, so that I can maybe have this fruit. When all along, they may not even be saved. They may not have even understood the gospel proper or wanted to understand a different gospel because it was convenient. It was easy. Someone made a really nice point in an email to me this past week that the focus of most people nowadays seems to be, how do I get to heaven? It's not, who's Jesus and why should I love him? Why should he be my Lord? It's, how do I get to heaven? 
It's one of these, you know, little checkbox. <laughs> now I can go back to the old life. Now that I've been, quote unquote, told by someone that was wearing a big hat and a collar or something, or some idiot that didn't have the gospel right, that all I have to do is believe in the backside of the coin, John 3.16, and somehow I'm saved. It has nothing to do with a person. It's just mental assent. But that is the, the contemporary argument that the Spirit's been working against now since part one. He's holding us accountable, rightfully so. I mean, that is the Great Commission, right? We don't just get to rest on our laurels now, right? And go, whoo, this is great. The rest of you, you know, hate to be you. No, we have a commission, and it's not to get a better job or to make more money, or to become more popular, or more reputable, or more sociable, or more anything. It's none of those things. Our commission, if it was, listen, if those things were actually important, wouldn't it say it in the Great Commission? Did he say, go out and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as disciples of mine, and make sure they have good hair and good shoes, and uh, gym memberships, because they've got to be buff, um, and they got to have a lot of money. Did he say all that? Did he say that was the Great Commission? No. It's almost ridiculous to put those things in the same context, is it not? But yet, isn't that what we sometimes do in our lifestyles? It's heinous what we do. Nonetheless, back to the point, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So if you have the Spirit, then you'll have his fruit. That's what the Bible says. And we need to stop flip-flopping around and watering things down and saying, well, Joe Schmo over here has never borne one piece of fruit in his life, but he's still saved somehow because he believed the back of this coin. No. The Bible precludes that. Jesus Christ would have done this. Verse 9. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God, and we live with him. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I gave you the Greek logizomai up here on the board for that word. Consider. It is in the present middle imperative, and I'll get to that in a second. It's often used metaphorically to refer to an absolute, unreserved confidence in something known to be true. This heartfelt confidence affects every thought and action. Paul's saying, consider. And it's right, it's accordingly. Or it's right that you consider yourselves to be dead to sin. This is his encouragement. This is the Spirit's encouragement to you this morning. Remember that. The next time you think that that flesh has any real power over you. So he says, even so, consider yourselves. It's in the present middle imperative. Here's a little Greek. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to understand what he's saying. The present imperative means continually, habitually follow this command, exclamation point. It's imperative, in other words, but it's something you do. Present tense means something you do habitually is often a call to a long-term commitment and calls for the attitude or action to be one's continual way of life. In other words, Paul's talking about your lifestyle. 
consider as your lifestyle, consider this thing, that you're dead to sin. And the middle voice means that the subject initiates the action and participates in the results of the action. And all of these things are by grace. So again, if you're not saved, you won't understand these things because they're spiritually appraised. We conclude then, even so, accordingly, consider in Romans 6.11, Paul is encouraging the Roman believers to cling to the faith that was given to them previously to never be fooled into thinking sin is still their master. Even when you do sin, you, your new nature, isn't changed. Your Lord owns you. Paul is stating the facts about a saved person's position in Christ. However, even though we have a new nature that, by all means, we ought to identify with, we must still deal with the vestiges, if you would, of sin, a.k.a. also known as the old sin nature that still rules our flesh. That's why Paul says, who will free me from this thing? this wretched flesh of mine. Because, like I say, you know, goofing around, it's your bad roommate. It's the roommate that's always there tempting you. You know, you know you're supposed to go to sleep, but they're like, let's go party, you know, this kind of thing. Paul wrote of this battle in Galatians 6. Hold your thumb, go to Galatians 5, uh, 16, sorry, Galatians 5. Galatians 5, 16. So we were just a little further down at the start of class in 522. 5.16, Galatians. So he talks about this battle frequently for obvious reasons. That the same way that it's not an absolute reality, our position is absolute, but our progressive sanctification, our experiential sanctification, is not absolute at the beginning we are sanctified. It's a progress. It's a process that we go through. But I say, verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may do not do the things that you please. Well, that's encouraging for us because we can't get too lopsided in our doctrines either, where we think that just because the sin life is dead to us and that our lifestyle is not dominated by the sin, it doesn't mean that we still don't sin, because we do. It's a heart issue. It's a desire issue. Have you been changed or not? Who's your Lord? Who rules you? Is it the sin or is it Christ? Those are the distinctions that the Spirit's been making from the pulpit. As we noted this past week in Romans 7, we are not our flesh. We simply battle with it. We are new creatures, and that's how we are to identify. It's very easy to get knocked down by our enemies into thinking that we are still our flesh, especially when we sin. See, you're not changed. You know how your old horrible friends are. You're not changed. I know who you are. Come on, let's go back to the 
old way we did things. That's the flesh. But we are to identify, and part, I'm convinced that that's part of the work that he has to do in us, that we have to learn to identify with the new creature, holy. So the obvious point Paul is making in Galatians 5 is that we believers, because of our failures in this ongoing battle, are able to offend even the Holy Spirit. And we call that grieving and quenching. And please do not apply any false doctrines to these words. No protocols, none of that garbage. Get that out of your system. Grieving and quenching the Spirit. When we sin, we grieve. And the word grieve, in the original language, there's a connotation of a personal offense, a hurt or pain. It pains the Spirit, in other words, when we sin. And that's how we have to look at it. It pains Him. We grieve Him. That's what grieve means. So when we sin, we grieve the Spirit. It's that personal, folks. He does indwell you after all. Ephesians 4.30 When we quench, just a different angle, a different posture of the same idea. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 We douse His fire. In other words, part of His active ministry in our lives, as we've learned many, many times, is His conviction. He works with what? The good conscience. And He uses the Word of God to convict us so that we understand there's judgment involved, so that we're able to judge. I taught a whole series on judging. Judging isn't always wrong. It's only wrong when you try to condemn another person to the lake of fire. Not your job, but you can judge yourself rightly. And that faculty is a function of God, the Holy Spirit's ministry in your life. So when we say, I don't want to listen to you anymore, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I don't want to listen to you anymore. I'm going to quench you, in other words. I don't want to hear your judgment. I don't want to listen to your convicting thoughts. And we quench him. We kind of put a little self-made la-la-la wall up, if you follow. I know that's very technical. There's a lot of Greek in there. A little Aramaic, but, you know, you wouldn't understand. So we, when we quench, we douse his fire. These things are antagonistic to being controlled or filled and walking by the Spirit. Does that make sense? It's very easy, right? It's not difficult. only gets difficult and goofy and more complicated when we attach religion to it. Back to Romans 6.11. Romans 6.11 <clears throat> Even so, remember, even so, accordingly, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Up here on the board, dead to sin. This means sin is no longer your sovereign, no longer Lord over you. A gospel that allows for a person to remain alive to sin is a false gospel even if it has the facts about Jesus correct. If you're truly saved, you'll hate sin. Matthew 6, 24. That's what the Bible says, not Pastor Ed. Listen, if you're dead to sin, it means sin is no longer your sovereign, no longer Lord over you. A gospel that allows for a person to remain alive to sin is a false gospel, even if it has the facts about Jesus correct. There's a lot of cheapened 
convenient gospels out there that say, just believe these things, say this little prayer with me, and you'll be saved. Don't even worry about, you know, when Jesus was talking about follow me and all that stuff, or repent, it occurs in, you know, the New Testament like a bazillion times more often than even um, other, uh, like salvation, I think it is. Um, don't worry about all that stuff. Don't, he's, yeah, he's a person, but get to know him after. Just believe this thing right here. There's plenty of time later to worry about him being your Lord and, you know, you having to make a decision about the cost of leaving the self-life behind. Don't worry about that now. Just do this thing and we'll go to the game and maybe when we're drunk we'll talk about those things. Right? Well, that's garbage. And Jesus would have never stood for it. Never. So why in the world would we? Why would we do that to him? Why would we misrepresent him? We have a great commission, and it is not to go get shoes and jobs. and It's actually to spread the gospel. To make believers. <laughs> it's funny how often or how much time has been wasted, quote-unquote, making disciples when the so-called disciples aren't even saved. People spending an awful lot of time learning about quote-unquote advanced doctrines, and they don't even have the gospel right. It's unbelievable. Back to the point. If you're truly saved, you'll hate sin, was the previous point. Therefore, a saved person, and I'm talking about your new nature, Your flesh loves sin, but you are not your flesh. You, if you're saved, hate sin. A saved person, therefore, is a confessing person. Why? Because a saved person is a new creature, and that new creature hates sin. Hence, John's treatise on unbelief being evidenced by a love of sin or unrighteousness in 1 John 3. We ran out of time on Thursday, so let's finish our work in Luke 14, where we noted Jesus laying down the facts about salvation, which, as we'll see again, is... Did I say Luke 14? I meant Genesis 3. Oh, 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 I just figured you kept wanting to turn pages while I was teaching. That's That's what I was thinking. Let me start again, because I lost my train of thought, because you guys are so advanced, so magnificent. Let's go, Pastor. (laughs) What you're saying right now doesn't matter. What matters is I get there first, like when we're in first grade. I'm there. Anybody else? I'm there. I don't even need thumb. I don't even need to thumb things. I just go like this over my Bible, and there it is, John, Luke 14. Did I make my point? So we ran out of time on Thursday, so let's finish our work in said chapter where we noted Jesus laying down the facts about about salvation, which, as we'll see again, is most definitely not an easy or convenient gospel. That's the point I didn't want you to miss while you were turning. It's not easy, and it's not convenient. All right, go to Luke 14, 25. Let's go, chop, chop. (laughs) 
You really need to hear that. That's why. Oftentimes, the, that point right before you get to the scripture is what you need to be clinging to. And if you're flipping pages and you're unconcerned about it, you don't get the point. You miss the, the greater revelation. Luke 14.25 Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And I gave you a nice little graphic. All that means is hate by comparison. You love him so much that any other relationship is really almost hate on the scale of love and hate. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus also said up here on the board, Matthew seven fourteen. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. Now that's heartbreaking to me. Honestly, heartbreaking. But these are his words. And he is the God-man. And he is omniscient. And he said, there are few who find it. That's very upsetting to me. I don't know about the rest of you. Luke 13, 24. But I get it. So I'm not upset with God. It's just upsetting to me that people are that arrogant. Luke 13, 24 says, Strive, contend, struggle, fight to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. In other words, you have to seek Him. You have to look for Him. It cannot just be some person who comes knocking to your door or interrupts you at the mall and begs you to believe in what's on the back of the coin. That is not what Jesus was talking about. Jesus is talking about an individual who's convicted and says, I know that God exists and I know that I'm pathetic and I need a Savior. Who is my Savior? I want a Savior. I need a Savior. I know it. I hate that old life. This thing's a crud. This is ridiculous. That's the person who has the right soil. That person has been struggling with that, in other words. There's a struggle with that situation. That's what he's saying. But a person who's unwilling to struggle, to strive with that situation, doesn't find Christ. Christ to them is just a check mark. And then everybody leaves them alone. But that's not what Jesus said. And that's why he said the language, or used the language he used, which is hard to hear, but it's true. Again, uh, 14.27, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And I gave you that in the past. Up here on the board, in context, carrying his own cross implies dying. In context, they would have known what Jesus was talking about. The cross conjured up all kinds of horrific thoughts. It was the end of life. It implies dying, being crucified with Christ, burying the flesh, a change in sovereign from sin to Christ. 
That's why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Jesus continues with his argument regarding salvation issues. And remember the audience was Pharisees and lawyers. Look at 14.28. He says, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Jesus wasn't proposing a convenient gospel, was he? Up here on the board, he said straight up, you need to weigh the consequences, O oh, Pharisees and lawyers, who were the uppities, if you would, with all the reputation and the finances. Weigh the consequences. A person must understand the weightiness of the gospel before they can be saved. You don't have to know everything that most of you know. We're not talking about an unbeliever having to understand most of the Bible just to be saved. That's not true. But there is a certain weight to it. There's a certain person involved in it. It's not just facts. It's not just a check mark. We're talking about a relationship, a desire to be unrelated to the flesh. I don't want you. I don't want to be related to you anymore. I don't want my nature that way anymore. I want to relate to Christ. I want to be in Christ. That's a relationship, folks. Which one do you want to relate to? See, people with a cheap gospel say, I want heaven, but I want to be the close relative of sin. Because, you see, I'm really important in society. You know, I'm like Imelda Marcos. I have 2,000 pairs of pumps. I have, you know, enough gel to gel a tribe in Africa for my hair. I have shoes to put shoes on that whole tribe. I have axe spray to make all the men attractive in that place. Right? I have all, in other words, I, I, I got it all. I don't want to have to give up that because my self-esteem is tied to all of that. Why would, I, why would God even ask me to give up that? You see the mentality? Why would God ask me to give up that? Because your self-esteem is tied to that. And that's no good. And that precludes you from turning to your Lord. So you have to weigh the consequences. A person must understand the weightiness of the gospel before they can be saved. They must understand and desire Christ as Lord, not just Savior. True repentance incurs the cost of surrendering the self-life. Now, something may never change in your life, but I know in my own personal life, there were, it was a mentality issue. It's still the same way. That you have to be changed. You have to be transformed. You have to have a repentant heart. True repentance incurs the cost of surrendering the self-life. Luke 14, 27 to 33. Look at verse 29. Otherwise... So he says, you're going to have to weigh the consequences, weigh the cost. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. We call that spurious faith. 
In other words, you started off right. But Jesus portrayed a person who failed to count the cost of true discipleship as failing to complete their conversion. They started, they came right up to the gate, and then they got choked out by details. They've got whatever. And this is reminiscent of the second and third categories of unbelievers in the parable of the soils, Matthew 13, 3-9. So, with all that in our pocket, we ought to be challenging individuals the way Jesus did, as necessary and unapologetically. It's not our job to do the work of reconciliation for God. It's not our job. Our job is very simple. Get the gospel right and then present it to people. That's it. We don't even save people. We talk about that in vernacular. We say, oh, I saved a soul today. No, you didn't. You did your job. You presented the gospel and a soul was saved. You don't save. God saves. Thank God, huh? Thank God we don't save. Jeez, the world will be in tatters even worse. <laughs> like, you know, you'd be like, your neighbor, you're like, he's such a jerk, though. God's like, you know, give him the gospel. Nope. <laughs> Luke 14.31 Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Up here on the board. Discipleship. Jesus demanded that to become a disciple... One must abandon their ties to the self-life. They must be willing to surrender unconditionally to the Lord. The same requirement exists today. Now, I've been hinting on this all morning, and this is the crux of the lesson, really. This point up here on the board. Our job is to get it right. Our job is to fulfill the Great Commission up here on the board. Where in Scripture does it ever say that we as evangelists ought to be conciliatory? Conciliatory means to, you know, um, compromise. Where in, the, in Scripture does it ever say, as evangelists, we ought to be conciliatory? It doesn't. If we water down the gospel, we are injecting human works into God's work of reconciliation. That's what we do when we water it down. We don't have that right, in other words. We don't have the right to do it. <laughs> we can't make it easier so that a person believes they're saved somehow. That's us and our human strength trying to reach across a person who's unwilling to come to Christ, you see? They need to come to Christ. They need to come to Christ. We don't get to meet them halfway, say, Jesus, I'll just, you know, they're right over there. 
I'll just water the gospel down a little bit to meet them over there because they're so arrogant, you know, but, but it's my mom, it's my dad, it's my aunt, it's my uncle. I love them so much. Can you just let me go over there and, and be conciliatory and, and I'll use a little of my own good works to, rec- to make sure this reconciliation thing actually happens? It's like, no. That's the story of, uh, of uh, the rich man, Lazarus, in Hades, right? He says, listen, if they don't listen to the prophets, you could be resurrected, they're not going to listen to you doesn't matter what you do or how much you love another person, you and your human works will never reconcile a person to God. That person has to be willing to follow Jesus. That's a very important point, folks, because that's how I believe, quote-unquote, good-intentioned people water down the gospel, if that makes sense. They say, but I love him so much, I just, I'll just make it a little bit easier. No, sorry, you don't have the right to make it easier. This is God's plan of salvation. Not Ed's, not Joey's, not Billy's, not Todd's. See how I left all the ladies out? (laughs) Even though in many ways they might be more willing because they're softer. I'm just saying, oh, I got the demon. You're like... They're like, oh, yeah, he picked on the guys. I was like, <laughs> like venom. Like, Ooh. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm going to like put a little camera up here sometime. The one that nobody knows is there. I'm going to record you guys. And when I say things, you're gonna, I'll, I'll put it up here and you guys can see what I see. Unbelievable. Or someone's really convicted. <laughs> what? <laughs> hilarious. Body language is hilarious. Anyways, I digress. This is very serious, though, in all fairness. Where in Scripture does it ever say that we as evangelists ought to be conciliatory? It doesn't. If we water down the gospel, we are injecting human works into God's work of reconciliation. Romans 5.11, 2 Corinthians 5.18-19. We need to be very careful that our desire to see those we love, or others, saved, doesn't somehow attempt this very heinous thing. Go to Romans 5.11. I'll show you. Romans 5.11. See, some of you probably never thought of it that way. That you are actually doing human good works, trying to reconcile someone you loved by watering down the gospel and making it a little easier and somehow charging out to them when Jesus Christ himself didn't do that thing. He says, you drop all of that stuff that you're dragging because you're dragging it, you can't get all the way to me. Drop all that and run to me. No, what we do is we say, Oh, I'm going to go help them pick up some of their baggage so they can make it all the way to you. I'm going to reach out to them, you see. Because they're so arrogant, they can't let go of that self-life. So I'm going to go help them lift the burden of the self-life by giving them a, a false, cheap, convenient gospel so that I can somehow bridge the gap instead of 
God's grace. If that makes sense. Romans 5.11. So who reconciles? Let's see. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now what? Received the reconciliation. We receive. It's a gift. Reconciliation is a gift. God gives it, not man. Hence the point on the board. How about 2 Corinthians 5.18? Go there. 2 Corinthians 5.18. So who is doing the reconciling? And does an evangelist have anything to do with the supernatural work other than presenting facts, other than presenting the truth about the gospel? That's the point. 2 Corinthians 5.18. Now, 2 Corinthians 5.18. Now, all, now, thank you, DJ, for putting up those blinds, by the way. I appreciate it. 2 Corinthians 5.18. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself. Who, who does the work of reconciliation, then? Yeah, he does. So you don't get to go out to an unsaved person and go, Dear God, listen, listen. I know him. It's my mom, it's my pa, it's my uncle, it's my best friend. I know, they're a really good person. I can, I'll vouch for them. They're a really good person. So let's, you know, let me go out and convince you that even though they're not willing to come all the way to Jesus, somehow my love will cover the, the difference. That sounds like Paul in Romans 9, doesn't it? I wish I was a curse for my brethren, even though it could never happen. You can't do that <laughs> as much as you'd like to see people you love, as much as you would like to vouch for those that you care about, the ones that are still unsaved. You don't get to somehow bridge or make up for their unwillingness to come to Christ. Does that make sense? You don't, you don't have that option. It's between them and God. And that's it. So, 2 Corinthians 5.18, And now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself, God gives it, not man, through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and has, he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And that's what you just got. There's no human works on either side of the fence in reconciliation. There's no human works with even the evangelist in reconciliation. So again, this is very important as it pertains to how we approach the gospel. It truly ought to be with the utmost reverence. The utmost reverence. That's how we approach the gospel. That's the gospel. We cannot water it down so that we can somehow bridge that gap, like this point on the board. Our commission is to present it as accurately as possible. Where in Scripture does it ever say that we as evangelists ought to be conciliatory? It doesn't. If we water down the gospel, we are injecting human works into God's work of reconciliation. We just looked at Romans 5.11. 
2 Corinthians 5, 18, 19, that should convince you that reconciliation is God's work, not man's. And an evangelist in context here is a man. What the Spirit's doing with us is the practical legwork of rooting out any falsity in our conception and presentation of the gospel. Why? Because of what I call the amplification error. Let me see if I can help you with this thought for a moment. Because this is what he's been saying. This is why he keeps teetering back and forth. He's saying, wait a minute, what, why would he take a, a so-called, you know, somewhat mature congregation who's had years of the word and is, you know, dedicated, why would he take them all the way back to the gospel? Because here's the thing. If you, even you, had the gospel a little bit wrong in your own soul, theologically, what happens is that little error, as you live it out, amplifies. And I was thinking about um, football, like a quarterback. Why is it that statistically short passes are completed at a higher percentage than long passes? Well, why is that? The obvious thing is that, you know, the human arm is not always perfect. Same thing in golf. If you make a, why is it that short putts are made more often than long putts? So I call that the amplification error. So this, the answer to that question is simple. The further away a target is from the passer, the more any error in the direction is amplified. So let me just show you what I was thinking. This is a little goofy, but just bear with me. So this is your football. There's your quarterback. There's a receiver right there. There's a receiver downfield. So in QB terms, a person might throw a pass, and all three passes here are received, even though two of them have a little bit of error in there. The problem is, if you're way downfield, if the quarterback throws a slightly wrong pass, that thing misses its target, doesn't it? And there's no touchdown. But down the middle, good pass, perfect pass, down the middle, right at the person, what happens? They grab it, they score a touchdown. Fair enough? Okay. That's why long passes and short passes statistically are significantly different. Now just think of it in terms of what I've been speaking of. So a false gospel may be received by many with the false promise even of heaven. And that's over here. Multiple gospels received, only one gospel that leads to life. However, a false gospel sends a person out of bounds eventually, never making a touchdown. See? They say, oh, I got, I got the gospel, right? Someone gave me a promise, but it was wrong. It sounded right. I mean, it was on the back of a coin. It seems like everybody's talking about John 3.16. I mean, I believed it. The problem is, you get all the way to the end of it all, and he says, I never knew you. Only the true gospel remains accurate enough so that some who receive, which is another word for believe it, score a touchdown, go to heaven. This is why we have to go all the way back. We have to go all the way back to make sure that we have the gospel right so that we ourselves can be assured that we're saved. Well, that's a good question to know, isn't it? And also those that we're presenting the gospel to 
we're not somehow presenting a stumbling block to them. So they end up on one of these vectors. So yeah, it's the right thing to do to go back all the way to the gospel to make sure we're getting it right. Every aspect of it. So the practical issue that the Spirit's been conveying to us for eight parts in this series is that a person must have true faith to hear the words, touchdown, quote-unquote, you're in heaven at the end of their life or at the rapture. There are some out there that may have to reload, quote-unquote, the gospel to ensure they've not even been deceived. The way we might gain confidence and be assured of the hope of our salvation then is by taking the objective evidence tests given to us in the Bible. People say, well, how do I know? Well, first of all, a true believer has been changed. Even though the flesh may get the better of them, they always want to do good. Romans 7.21. That is a big deal. That's how you'll know that you're saved, in part. And there's other evidence given to us, other litmus tests, as I like to call them, fruit. What fruit should I have? What think of Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Even though the flesh may get the better of them, they always want to do good. Their desire may be counted as good fruit, since it is indeed a gift from God, and God sees the heart. So it doesn't mean you're always going to do the right thing. It means you're going to definitely desire, you being the new creature, desire to do the right thing, to do the good thing. For example, bearing good fruit. The Bible is clear that sanctification after salvation is guaranteed. Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, mature it, until the day of Christ Jesus. This is why the canon includes the absolute poles for our consideration. The Apostle John had no qualms plainly stating the truth of the matter. That's that phrase that even Jesus said. You shall know them by their fruit. Well, that's why I drew it that way. I mean, if you're downfield and you don't have fruit, well, you might have a problem. That's the point. And you shouldn't be afraid to address that issue. The only, the only person that's afraid to address that issue, the only one that's insecure still, is the one who's not saved. The one who's saved knows they're saved. if they go by the Bible. The problem is most people that are living in darkness that think they're in the light have no intention of visiting the Bible. Hear a class like this and they go, "That's I don't want that. That would, I mean, that wouldn't require that I have to give up my ties to the self-life. <laughs> no kidding. I'd rather go to the watered-down church over here in the other corner with the big steeple and the 6,000 people and the phonies. That's people. The Apostle John uses very straightforward language to describe the polar differences between a person who has been given faith and the one who hasn't. Go to 1 John 3, 4. We'll review this. 1 John 3, 4. That's what I like about John. You read his gospel. You read um, his epistles. He's very direct. He says, listen, it's not hard. I mean, there is a context here um, that I would invite you to read um, up on. There is a context here. Of course, John was dealing with 
Gnosticism and Docetism and all these kinds of things, people saying that, you know, the, the, the body was just plainly evil and the spirit was all good and uh, don't worry about sins. You don't sin because that's your body and you're not your body. All this garbage doctrine that just really mangled the gospel, he was dealing with that. But the principles that he uses to defend those wrong th- doctrines are the same for us. Because, like Solomon says, nothing new under the sun, right? So this is why we get to go to the Scripture and be edified ourselves, even you know thousands of years later. 1 John 3, 4, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins, no one who sins has ever, or excuse me, no one who sins has seen him or knows him. Sins up here on the board, hamatano, present active indicative means an absolute lifestyle. No one who abides in him sins, no one who sins has seen him or knows him. And we're talking about lifestyle. It doesn't mean that you're going to be in sinless perfection, folks, after you're saved. We're talking about a lifestyle. Present active indicative means it absolutely will be a lifestyle. It actually will be in you, so to speak. Okay? Verse 6, no one, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Jesus said it plainly, too, up here on the board. I'll give you the amplified. John 5.38 You do not have his word, scripture, abiding in you, actually living in your hearts and minds, because you do not believe in him whom he has sent. Again, 1 John 3.6 No one who abides in him sins, no one who sins has seen him or knows him. And the sinning again is a lifestyle issue. In other words, if a person is dominated by sin, what John is saying is they're not saved. Not Pastor Ed. That's what John's saying. If their lifestyle is sin, then they have a problem. They have a problem. And we don't get to be all conciliatory about it. Right? We don't. We don't have that ability. Our job is to present the truth. And if the Apostle John wrote this under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit then that's what we're supposed to teach and not water it down and not make it nice so that Uncle Jimmy has a chance to go to heaven. That's you trying to bridge the gap. That's you trying to vouch for somebody else's salvation. That's you trying to bring someone close to Jesus Christ that doesn't want to go all the way to Jesus Christ. says, I'll come halfway, but I want to keep all my luggage. Okay, I'll get rid of half of it. But I still, these are my favorite things right here, you know what I'm saying? I'm really good looking and I'm popular and I'm rich. So I can't get rid of my ties to that. Come on! I'll give you everything else. It's like, uh, remember, uh, oh, what's the one with the Burt Reynolds on the beach? The end? God, I'll give you 90%. Then he's like halfway. He's like, I know I said 90, but 50%. Then he comes on shore. He's like, oh, if you don't want my 10%, then to heck with it. And he walks up on shore. Right? It's ridiculous. People bargaining with God. No, there's no bargaining. Jesus Christ said, follow me. Leave that stuff behind. And when he says that, the, the, the principle is, if it has a hold over you, if it's keeping you, like the rich man, the ruler, he said, you have a problem with the self-life, with your riches. You've got to get rid of them to follow me. Because you won't follow me because you'll still be attached to those riches. See, a person who's rich, who doesn't have those problems, doesn't have that problem. 
They look at their riches already and go, it's nothing anyways. Here today, it's gone tomorrow, like Paul said. I go with it, I go without, I don't care. I have it, I don't, whatever. Right? That's not a person with that problem, so Jesus wouldn't have approached that person's heart on that vein of thought. He may have approached it somewhere else, somehow else, you know. So let's go with John again. Little children, verse 7. Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices, that's present active, that's habitual sin. The one who practices as a lifestyle, sin is of the devil. For the devil is sin from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. So remember, during John's lifetime, there were many attacks on the gospel. Attempts to water it down and even change it. That's why mere words never suffice for salvation. Someone may use the phrase, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and even state all the facts correctly. However, unless the heart is quickened by God, by God, that person is not saved. And you will know it's quickened. You will know because you will have the Spirit testifying in you. God saves people, not man. We don't save ourselves, and we don't save others. God saves. Satan wants you to accept that the gate is wide that leads to life, so that in the end, many will perish. That's the lie. He wants you to peddle that gospel that you've watered down because you love Uncle Jimmy. He wants Uncle Jimmy to believe that garbage so that they're stuck in it, and then at the end of it all, they go to the lake of fire, and you didn't help. You didn't help because you, in your good works program, tried to reconcile that person to God. On your terms, not God's. God's terms are very straightforward. Repent and follow my son. Then you can get to me. Well, I'll help out a little bit, you know. No, you do not have that option. And it's quite arrogant for you to really attempt that thing, to widen the gate, so to speak. I was thinking of this way. I think I presented this. If you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. Think of it this way. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Oh, there's a lot of Gospels out there that they use all the right language. They say all the right things. They make it easy. They make it sound righteous. They make it sound all these things. But there's, Jesus Christ is nowhere involved. I mean, I heard this is so disgusting. I have to do this once in a while. It's so abrasive to me. Does anybody know who uh, Richard Dawkins is? He's like the key atheist guy. He writes books and he tours, basically. and gets everybody to think about what I've been talking about in my last two blogs. Think rationally. Think rationally. Why should we believe the Bible? Think rationally. It's an old book. It's this. It's that. Think rationally. That's all he does. Think rationally. Think rationally. Think with me. Why should you even have that conversation with him? And then I see these idiots with collars and then calling themselves pastors and then there's some Jewish people up there, Orthodox Jews, and there's all these people. And not one of them, maybe one, who was a bishop from, I don't know from what denomination or whatever, but the majority, 
the people so-called ordained for God. Well, like, yeah, you know, the Bible, it's, um, it's, it's our starting point. And you know what the Jews, the Orthodox Jews said, oh, we, have, we started with the Bible. We have all kinds of stuff that we added to over the years. That's what we think. Satan's like, mm-hmm. Then you got the so-called Christian. One guy says, and he's sitting there, and he's got his collar on. And you know how most people identify a collar, you know, a priest or whatever. And he basically denounced the Bible. He said it's, it's too old. Like, my, what is wrong with these people? The whole lot of them should have been just burned up, as far as I'm concerned. And people are cheering in the audience. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, in that case, I have no problem telling you straight up. You don't follow Jesus Christ, guess what? You're going to the lake of fire, and you deserve to go there, you arrogant person. How dare you cheer for Satan and satanic doctrines and these angels of light that wear collars and look the part and not willing to do what I'm doing right now, stand up for truth. It's disgusting. And Satan's using them as angels of light when all they're doing is complicating, making people, making it worse for people. Faulty Gospels, as the Spirit's been pointing out, are riddled with subtle misrepresentations of Jesus Christ. The worst are often those being peddled by the so-called Pope nowadays. And don't send me any more emails about that guy. I'm sickened by it. I can't even imagine what the heck is going on. I can't even imagine that person being saved. Probably get completely... Nice knowing you, right? (laughs) Honest to goodness, that we ought to be seeking human works as reconciliation with God, as if to propose that simply learning to get along with each other is true peace in this world. What a blasphemous liar he is. That is a flat-out lie. We can call that bad religion. Learning to get along with each other is not the source of true peace and never the pathway to God. John 14, 6, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. That's man trying to hijack the true source by means of human works towards reconciliation with God. That's bad religion. Bad religion always does that thing. They bring in human works. We said, if we just all get along, God will be pleased. He's like, oh, look at my children. They're all getting along. Whee, let's just, just grab them all, give them a big hug, and bring them to heaven. Wrong. That would make Jesus Christ himself a liar. He says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. These same idiots said that the cross was a failure. Can you believe that? The cross is a failure. The Pope said that publicly. He failed on the cross. Oh, my word. What the heck Bible are you reading? Oh, that's right. You don't read the Bible. That's right. These false gospels are the pathway to ecumenical church, the ecumenical church that is prophesied of in Scripture, which will 
be led by the false prophet, who essentially is Satan's little whore. We, on the other hand, even though human governments at this juncture could seem to care less, we are obliged through our newfound desire to obey our Lord to get the gospel completely right. For us to propagate a convenient gospel is to contribute to the bedlam we must now accept as contemporary Christianity. I'm not accepting it. I'm not going to accept this garbage that so-called Christians are peddling. It's garbage. That's why I don't even, want, I don't even really call myself a Christian anymore. I call myself a believer. That's it, a sinner saved by grace. Anything but Christian nowadays, because Christianity is that. I mean, who the, the vast world identifies with these idiots on television as the representatives of Christianity. Well, if you're the representative of Christianity, I don't want anything to do with Christianity. Nothing. I want to understand truth. I don't care about some tagline. Christianity started out as a bad name anyways. Read it in Acts. It was derogatory. The word. We must be exceptionally careful that we aren't inadvertently widening the gate that leads to salvation. After all, Jesus Christ himself kept it narrow and in his own words made this statement. Matthew seven fourteen. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. Again, to the flesh, That is offensive because the flesh makes up bad questions like that idiotic forum, the one where everybody was rationalizing with human rationalism, bad questions such as how can a loving God send so many of his own creatures to hell? That's a terrible question to ask. But truth is always offensive to the flesh. It's always offensive to the flesh. So the Spirit's guidance on this is up here on the board. The Word is offensive to the flesh. If we aren't able to cling to truth in Scripture, such as we have directly in front of us, as it is plainly stated, then we open ourselves up to a wider gate to salvation than scripturally warranted. We don't have the opportunity. I don't care. If it's offensive, if you think I'm being offensive and I'm saying Uncle Jimmy's not saved yet because of that little trick you tried to play with the gospel, you watered it down and just patted him on the head and said, Uncle Jimmy, see it all you say, I get to go in heaven, yay! Because you said this little thing with me, yay! I feel good about me, you feel good about you, Satan feels good about all of it. I don't care if it's offensive, that's disgusting, how dare you do that? How dare you play God? That's what people do. How dare you say someone's saved on a false, watered-down, convenient gospel? How dare you do that thing? And don't feel bad. I used to do it. Think about that, folks. And then when you see Scripture sitting right in front of you, you see the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right in front of you. You have to make a choice, don't you, right now. Am I going to represent Christ? 
or am I going to represent something else that widens the gate so I can go home and sleep at night and feel better about how I saved some souls because that's what man does. We save souls. Is that what this is all about? No way. Our great commission is to get it right. And that's it. God saves souls. Amen? Amen. So what are we doing? Our job is to get it right. I think people are backwards on this whole thing. I'm like kind of PO'd if you can't tell. Because people are backwards. It's like we become a bunch of little beggars. Will you please, Uncle Jimmy, please, will someone please take the gospel? Somebody please take the gospel. Please, whatever. All right, will you, all right we'll cack that out. Will you take it now? It's like contract negotiations. Will you, will you take it now? No, no, you're going to take that. I don't like that stuff either. Okay, just chop that off. Here it is. You take it now. We should be like, hey, listen, Jesus Christ died for you. Period. Accept it or don't accept it. That's between you and the Lord. But if you don't, here's the deal. And if you do, here's the deal. I'm out of here. See you later. You want to cling to the old life and play pretend? That's between you and the Lord. I'm telling you what the truth says. And that's what's in the Bible. And if you don't believe the Bible is the word of God, then you have a bigger problem. And if you believe there's even a God, then you have even a bigger problem. So here's the truth of the matter. 1 John 3.9. I've got to close before my voice blows out of my face. 1 John 3.9. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. That's, again, a habit, a lifestyle nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This is a big deal. That's another huge litmus test. If you don't have any love for the brethren, you, my friend, have missed the boat completely. If you say you're going to heaven, but you can't stand the world, or not the world, you can't even stand your brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ, you, my friend, have a problem. I'm not talking about you have to like them. I'm talking about loving them. I'm talking about Christ-like love. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. That's how we know. Another litmus test. Are you ready for that? How do we know? Because you love. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth, and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Up here on the board. These are heart issues, folks. First John three nineteen to 21 
We ought to examine our hearts and seek the truth about our salvation. If we stand uncondemned, then we have confidence before God. Salvation status is ultimately a personal issue. The Spirit convicts both believers and unbelievers. These are hard issues. That's why I could never look out there and go, Oh, Anthony, you're definitely not saved. Because I saw you peeling out in the parking lot with your truck and pressing all the ladies. Because he does that. I don't know if you know. Like he waits for most people to leave. Right? Puts his giant arm out the window. He's like, what's up, ladies? I've got to loosen you guys up. He was like, oh, my God. Joey's like, that's nothing. He's been spitting on me all morning. Joey's like, oh, Bill Lowe, you got any room back there? <laughs> These are hard issues, folks. That's why I would never do that thing. And I hope you realize that. It's not my job. Not my job to convict anyone here whether or not you're saved. I can only teach Scripture. And when he tells me to emphasize certain things, you know I do it because I love you. And that's why I do it. And, but at the end of the day, it's between you and the Lord. And you should convey that same grace towards those that you truly love that you might suspect aren't saved by giving it to them straight up the way it is. Don't water it down. Don't lie about it. Don't try to reconcile them to God. Don't try to cross that bridge on your own. Don't try to do the work that they're unwilling to do. Don't try to count the cost on their behalf for them because they're unwilling. Don't do that. You're hurting them. You're not helping. The only thing that can help them is to stock truth. Fair enough? All right, let's just finish this passage, and I, I, I swear I'm going to close. 1 John 3.22 And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him and He in Him. That's what you do when you're saved. You keep His commandments. You love one another. We know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. That's how you know. It's another test, folks. As I've taught you in the past, the answer to the question, how do I know for sure, is answered by John here. All I can say is that if you're saved, you'll know it. And if you want, no matter how hard you try to convince yourself otherwise, something will be missing. Namely, even, fruit of the Spirit, which is how we began this morning's message in Galatians 5. So let's finish where we started. And before we celebrate the Lord's Supper, go to Galatians 5.16. We'll read it. I'll have the ushers pass out the elements There's not going to be a whole lot to be said. I mean, with a lesson like this, communion (laughs) is such a blessing. Galatians 5.16 But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are 
immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things, again, as a lifestyle, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, all those things, that nasty list, you hate. And you seek for the fruit of the Spirit. That's what you want in your life. But the fruit of the Spirit, again, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And again, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And then finally, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, ushers, come uh, pass out the elements, please. A little music. I'm playing the cymbals. We live in the glory days. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen? As I said, after a lesson like today, we don't need a much more prep. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of his person. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance 
with me. Let's drink the cup in remembrance of his work. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's bow our heads. I'd like to dedicate the closing moments of today's message to those who are without Christ and therefore are without hope. John 3.16 does state, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you are indeed without Christ at this moment, know this, have faith in this, and embrace this as solemn truth. Acts 16.31, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. If you believe that you need a Savior and you truly repent of your sinfulness, then accept the free invitation now that is Christ himself and be saved. If you just believe for the very first time, I'd like to welcome you to the family of God. Father, thank you again for this morning's message for making this a day to celebrate not just life itself, but the giver of life, the light that came into the world so that we might be saved. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What an indescribable gift he is, Father. We thank you eternally for sending him to accomplish his good work on the cross. Without him, we'd not even know you. Your Son, our Lord and Savior, said, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Thank you for giving us this time this morning to reflect on all of this. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.